true Christians have always been a remnant in this world. And, and that's becoming more and more true, isn't it, in our culture today. The values of our society have shifted and they are shifting. And we, we Christians, we're out of step with where society is going. For instance, in Canada, in 1997, Hugh Owens took out an advertisement in a paper regarding homosexuality. The advertisement consisted of references to Romans 1, 26 and 27, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Understand this. The references weren't even quoted. He just listed the references in the advertisement. That's all the people saw. The paper was fined $9,000 for having such an advertisement. Well, that case, 1997, we know how things go. That case has been appealed, and the final decision is still pending. Over 15 years later, they're going to decide on it this year. Still, no newspaper in Canada today would even accept such an advertisement. Canadian society, in fact, has made its decision. Saying that homosexuality is wrong in a public venue, that's a no-no. You can't do that. Even in Ireland, which, as you know, is historically Roman Catholic, bishops were warned in 2003, when an official church document came out from the Catholic Church, a theological document, they were warned that they could be imprisoned for distributing that church document. Recently, in the United States, the government has demanded that Catholic hospitals provide for coverage for contraception sterilization, and Plan B drugs which induce abortion. The government, the state, is infringing upon religious liberty in remarkable ways. But we're not surprised. Scripture warns us of this, doesn't it? Scripture warns us that the state may become a beast. The state may become an antichrist. I'm not calling for a political movement here. Although, if you're called to the political sphere, that is a noble calling for a Christian. But I'm not calling for that. I'm saying we are a remnant. And I am calling upon us to be ready to suffer for Christ. We must be ready to suffer for our faith, even if that means discrimination in employment, even if that means pain fines. And who knows what's to come? Only God knows, even if it means imprisonment or, or even physical punishment. We must be discerning and recognize that we live in a day when the state and the government is taking on prerogatives that belong only to God. We must not pin our hopes on being popular in society. We must have an answer ready for those who ask us about the hope that is in us. And we must live lives that bring glory to God, answering gently but, but boldly 
to people who ask us these things. Well, the theme of the remnant is a, is a big part of this passage before us. And the first truth I see here in this text is that God always preserves a remnant. What Paul has in mind here relates particularly to Israel, the chosen people of God. As we, If you've been with us, we've seen most Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. That was true in Paul's day. That's still true today, isn't it? Most Jews do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul asks in verse 1, has God rejected his people? Has Israel been cut off forever? Is God finished with Israel? And the answer is clear. Absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. In fact, this truth is so important that Paul repeats it again, doesn't he? Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. By the way, this verse is very important for defining foreknowledge. I wonder how you'd define it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. How would you define that word? God's foreknowledge doesn't mean that he merely looked ahead and saw who would be saved. No, God's foreknowledge means that God foreordained and predetermined who would be saved. So we could translate the verse as follows. God has not rejected his people whom he has elected. Do you see how the word for no is an antonym of the word chosen? Or, I mean, rejected. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's an antonym, isn't it? So, the word for no means elected, chosen, or selected. God will never reject Israel totally because they're his chosen people. He set his covenant affection on them. He'll never withdraw that covenant affection. How do we know that God hasn't rejected Israel? Now Paul gives us a piece of evidence to support this, doesn't he? Paul gives himself as an example in verse 1, pointing out that he is an Israelite. Paul's speaking of himself here, isn't he? I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What is Paul saying here? Clearly, God hasn't rejected Israel, Paul says. Look at me. I'm a member of Israel. I'm chosen. There's a minority in Israel that believes. There's a, there's a remnant. The, the choice of Paul shows God's sovereignty in choosing Israel. But, but Paul's only one person. What's, what's the big deal about the conversion of a single person? So Paul turns to the story of Elijah. So we will understand this very clearly. Elijah also lived in a day when Israel was turning away from the Lord. Do you remember that story? Elijah lived in a day prophesying in northern Israel when Israel was turning to Baal worship, to the worship of a false god. 
Israel had begun to worship Baal and turn away from the Lord so that there were few left following Yahweh. Even after Elijah won a great victory over the prophets of Baal, you can read about that in 1 Kings 18, even after winning that great victory and putting to death 400 prophets of Baal, Elijah despaired of final victory. Elijah laments that the prophets of the Lord had been killed. And that's what we read in our text, doesn't it, before us. They tore down the altars where the Lord was worshipped. And now Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of the Lord left. And they're seeking to take my life. We're going to be wiped out altogether. We can feel that way as a church as well. I mentioned at the outset the remarkable cultural shift going on today. So many things are turning against us. We ought not to turn a blind eye to that. It is indeed happening. We may be tempted to despair about the future. A deep discouragement could settle over us. We see in these verses that Elijah was discouraged and downcast and despairing. And we may feel the same way today. But notice the Lord's reply to Elijah's lament and complaint in verse 4. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The Lord says to Elijah, you are not alone. I haven't abandoned my people. I will never forsake my people. True believers will never be extinguished from the land. And the same is true in Paul's day. Paul isn't the only one who believes. That's not his point, right? God hasn't abandoned his people. There's still one more Jew, me. Paul's not the only one. There's a remnant. There's a remnant that will continue. Because conversion is God's work. Did you notice what verse 4 says? The Lord says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men. It is God who chose the remnant to be saved. It is God who raised them up. It is God who converted them. It is God who set them apart. And Paul makes it clear in verse 5. What was true in Elijah's day is still true in his day. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. The remnant will continue. The remnant will survive, not because of human strength, not because of human virtue, but because of the grace of God, because of God's election, because of God's mercy to his people. Now, there's something else that's very important about a remnant, and I, and I want you to get this. This is so important. It never ends with a remnant. The remnant is an anticipation of something. The remnant is a promise 
and an anticipation of complete and final victory. Uh, the remnant is not merely saying there will always be a remnant. Yes, there will always be a remnant, but it is a promise of something more to come. And we'll see this as we go in Romans 11. The preservation of a remnant is a guarantee of final victory. And it calls us to optimism, optimism and faith and hope. God will not be limited to, limited to a remnant. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're a remnant. We are small, but we are conquerors. We will never be defeated because the victory of the church is God's work. We should not be surprised that we're a remnant now. We should not be surprised that we're a minority. We should not be surprised that we're sojourners and exiles. We should not be surprised that the world is against us. We should not expect popularity. And too often in the United States, Christians have expected majority status. We shouldn't be shocked by these things. And in the midst of the battle, we can get discouraged and despondent like Elijah did. Maybe sometimes you feel like, Elijah, I'm the only one left. Or maybe you become downcast and think, well, what's the use? Why keep laboring on? We're such a minority. But these verses remind us that as a remnant, we will ultimately triumph. Since we face discouragement, and despondency in our earthly journey, one of our callings as a church, as a body, is to encourage one another, isn't it? Satan wants to discourage us. One of the prime means God can use to encourage us is our relationship with one another. How wonderful it is when we're discouraged and despondent and down to have fellow believers to lift us up, to encourage us, to strengthen us. Therefore, don't become isolated in your life. Don't isolate yourself. That's a prime means of discouragement, isn't it? If you isolate yourself from others and you try to walk alone, open yourself up to other Christians, spend time with other believers, you won't be... You won't be encouraged if you don't share with other people. Of course, you can even get together with other believers and not share what's on your heart. Be open and vulnerable and honest if you're discouraged and despondent and take a risk and tell other believers, brothers and sisters who love you, how you're doing so they can uphold you in prayer. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are perceptive, but then there's a lot of people out there like me. And I'm a person, when somebody says they're fine, I'm not that perceptive. I tend to think they are, you know? So we need to be told. If you, if you, just, if you just say you're doing okay, many, many people think you are doing okay. So, so open up and share. Because it is a joy to carry one another's burdens. I get discouraged. You get discouraged. We all get discouraged as Elijah did. 
Let us bear one another's burdens as a body. A new heaven and a new earth is coming in which righteousness reigns and we will reign with Christ. We won't be a remnant forever. So that's the first truth. There's a promise of a remnant. Here's the second. In verses 5 and 6, election, God's election is inseparable from salvation by grace. Let me say that again. Election is inseparable from salvation by grace. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The remnant exists by gracious election. The remnant doesn't exist because human beings are virtuous. It exists because of God's election. It exists because God has chosen some to be saved. And verse 5 tells us grace and works are fundamentally incompatible. If salvation is by grace, and it is, then it can't be by works. It can't be based on works. Salvation isn't mostly by grace and partly by works. Salvation isn't 75% by grace, but 25% by works. Salvation isn't 90% of grace and 10% of works. Salvation is entirely all of grace. Our works don't contribute to salvation at all. So if you're a non-Christian with us today, and you think that Christians are people who are moral and good, and that's why they're Christians, recognize that's not what a Christian is. A Christian isn't fundamentally a person who is right with God because of their morality or their goodness. No, salvation is a gift given to one who is a sinner. The Scriptures teach our works can't save us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not on the basis of anything we do. If salvation is partly by grace, and partly by works, then grace is no longer grace. I think this is so encouraging. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Salvation is God's work. Salvation isn't our work. Salvation is open to all, no matter what you've done. John Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, some people have changed that song when they sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. That is, that is not what John Newton wrote. Right? <laughs> saved a wretch like me. What Paul helps us see here, but salvation by grace, not by works, is linked with election. Have you ever thought of that? Salvation is by grace, not works. He ties it very closely in the text, with God's choosing us, with His election. By definition, grace means that salvation is not due to your choice. 
but God's choice of you. Salvation isn't finally and ultimately due to your choice, but to God's election of us. You can't take credit, and I can't take credit for being a Christian. All the credit goes to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you haven't received? Answer, nothing. We've received it all. We've received salvation as a gift of God. When Diane and I were at Fuller Seminary, like all seminary students, we were struggling to make ends meet. It was financially tight. One semester, one quarter, we checked our finances and some friends of ours paid our tuition for that quarter. They didn't pay 75%. They didn't pay 90%. They paid all of it. That was a great gift. What did we do to contribute to our tuition? Nothing. How could we respond? Only with thanksgiving. Only with gratefulness. We didn't do anything. We didn't merit that. They just chose, because of their graciousness, they just chose to pay our tuition. And we responded in thanks and in uh, gratefulness to them. So to our salvation. We don't do anything to merit salvation. We don't choose fundamentally to be saved. We receive God's gift and we give thanks to Him. Let me say another word about this matter. All the great reformers believed in election. This is not a new doctrine. Luther believed in it. Calvin believed in it. Zwingli believed in it. But they didn't believe in it for philosophical or speculative reasons. They believed in it because of this text right here and other texts as well. They believed in election because election preserves the notion that salvation is by grace alone. In fact, Romans 11, 5 and 6 were two of Luther's most favorite verses because he saw that this text preserves the notion that God alone saves. Election makes it clear that all the glory goes to God for our salvation. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are those spiritual blessings? Here's the first one named. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. May God be praised. May you praise God for His grace for choosing you to belong to Him. May you give Him all the glory, all the praise from the bottom of your heart for including you in this great salvation. 
That brings me to the third and last truth in verses 7 through 10. God hardens unbelievers so that they don't know the truth. God hardens unbelievers so they don't know the truth. Now, this is a stunning and difficult truth. And here's the first thing I want to say. I didn't write these verses. (laughs) But I want to understand them as best as I can. It's not our job, it's not my job, to explain these verses away. There are too many places, too many churches, where verses like this are just skipped over. Because they're worried that people won't like them or won't understand them. But that approach doesn't honor God and doesn't trust His Word. It trusts human wisdom. So let's ask God to help us as we look at what Paul says here. He says in verse 7, Israel did not find the salvation it was seeking. That actually goes back to Romans 9, verse 31, a text we looked at a few weeks ago. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel did not obtain salvation because they were seeking it by works. They were trying to put God in their debt. It's those who are elect. You notice, see that in the text? It's those who are an elect, who are elect who obtained salvation. Not those who are trying to be righteous by works. It's election, not human effort, that makes salvation sure, is what Paul teaches us here. But the rest... The unbelievers, those who weren't elect, were hardened. In verse 8, Paul stitches together verses from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. Notice that the hardening is God's work. He says the rest were hardened. You might think they hardened themselves. It's a passive verb. But the next line makes it clear. Verse 8 says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. The rest were hardened by God himself, right? For it is God who gave them a spirit of stupor. Now, what Paul teaches here must be explained carefully. All these texts in Isaiah refer to what I would call judicial hardening. In other words, I think in the context, we don't have time to look at the context of these references in the Old Testament. The same is true in verses 9 and 10. I think in the context, what we see in every instance is God hardens in sin those who've turned against Him. That's very important. God hands over to sin those who have turned against Him. Paul says something very similar in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. He says people perish. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's focusing on the human will, isn't it? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may, so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Do you see the order here? People refuse to love the truth, and they love wickedness. And as a result, God sends on them a delusion, so they believe a lie. I think that's what Paul is teaching here in Romans 11 as well, and in verses 9 and 10. In the con- the, here Paul quotes Psalm 69. In the psalm, the judgment is pronounced on those who categorically rejected the things of God. Since they've turned against God and persecuted the righteous, their table will not be a feast but a snare. Their table will be a means of judgment for them. They will never see the truth in this life. Their backs will will be bent in humiliation forever. So that's a very short explanation. Let me just apply it a little bit. First application, we should recognize there is a final judgment. Those who reject the Lord will be destroyed forever. In our sentimental world, we have to remember there's a lake of fire. There's a final judgment. There's there's hell. Second, beware. I'm speaking particularly to unbelievers here. Beware of rejecting the things of God. Don't think you are ultimately in control. Don't think you can just decide one day to throw off evil and decide to follow God. Don't think you can live however you want and then you will turn to God one day and be saved. I remember very well one of my dearest friends from when I was young. I knew him from first grade on. And some years ago when I was back in Salem, Oregon, where I grew up, we went on a walk together when I came back in the town. And he was struggling with what to do with his life. He was having problems with panic attacks and other issues. He was just at a crossroads in his life. All these trials raised in his mind the issue, should I give my life to Jesus? But as we talked and walked, he was hesitant. He didn't know what his life would be like as a Christian. And he wanted to retain control of his own life. So I exhorted him, turn to Christ now. This this is the day of salvation for you. And I told him that day, you know, the Holy Spirit's working in your life. And if you don't respond now, you may never want to respond. You may not have another opportunity like this in your life. Well, he didn't believe that day. And as far as I know, he doesn't believe now. I'm not saying he's judicially hardened. I don't go around making that pronouncement about people. I don't know. I hope not. But I am saying we're not in control of our lives. We must not think that we can give ourselves over to evil and then just turn on a dime to God and think that we'll have the capacity and inclination and interest in doing that. This text tells us God may hand us over to evil so that we are enveloped by it. And there's no way back. When God hands us over to evil, then we don't want to turn to God. you understand me? I'm not saying somebody wants to turn to God and they can't. They don't want to. The desire is gone. So, I ended last week's sermon, if 
Do you remember that if you were here? By saying, we never give up hope. Remember that? There's hope to the end. Someone may turn to Christ like the thief on the cross at the very end of their life. And that's true. But there's another side to the story. I think this text tells us often those who have rejected God, they have no desire to turn to God at the end. I think here of the death of Joseph Stalin. And when Stalin was dying, he began to have these experiences of imaginary wolves attacking him. And it was terrifying him. It was a foretaste of what was to come for this man. No indication that he was repenting after giving himself so unrestrainedly to evil. So there's a coming judgment, isn't there? Let us ask God to protect us from the evil one. And if you're saved, give thanks. Give thanks that you were chosen. What is it that causes our little wills to incline towards God? It's God, this text tells us. It's God's work, isn't it? It's not our work. It's what He does in us. So as we come to the table today, if you belong to God, give thanks. Give thanks that He has redeemed you and chosen you and included you as part of the remnant.